As they're heading out, I'll uh, pray for us real quick. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can come together and celebrate the hope and the life that we have in you. That we can worship you in song. That we can worship you through giving. That we can worship you in listening to your word. God, I pray that as we look to your word this morning, that you just be speaking to us, that we have soft, humble, and open hearts to what you have to say, and that you can just form us more and more into the image of your Son. pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so go ahead and open your Bible up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm excited to be preaching this morning as we're continuing on in our Family of God series. It's a series in which we've been looking at it, what it means to be the church, what it means to be the church, what it means to be this collective group of people that all share a common faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, or another way it's described in the Bible, what it means to be a body with Jesus as the head, or as the title of our series states, what it means to be this family of God. So far, we've been reading through Ephesians chapter 4 to gain insight as to what this all means. And at times, I don't know about you, but I have definitely been challenged and convicted by, by what God's word has to say. I've gained a lot of understanding, but this understanding becomes quite personal quite quickly because the series is ultimately about us. It's about you and me, and what God has to say about all of the facets and dynamics of this gathering of believers. And it's not just unique to us right here, right now in this building, but it's for all believers around the world for all time. So there's a lot for us to chew on as we work our way through this series, and there's a lot we have already had to chew on. We began our series by looking at what the character of the family of God ought to be. Character traits of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. I don't know about you, but that was all one big ball of conviction for me. And then we looked at the unity, the unity that we make every effort to keep because of the Holy Spirit being within this family of God. And then we looked at the focus, or what unites us as this family, And it's summed up as this holistic focus on God. And last week, Brandon preached on the work we do as the family of God. The work we do that all starts with belief. It's all founded in the belief we have in Christ. And then it overflows from there in our love of God to service and to building up the body. And so far, we've been cruising through Ephesians 4. But today, we're going to take a slight detour away from chapter 4 and We're going to be looking at a passage in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm excited to preach on this passage because this is one of the passages that is the basis for our series, the idea of being a family of God. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we are not meant to be alone, but we are called to a group. 
And as Brandon has mentioned over and over again, this coming together that we do every Sunday morning and in smaller groups throughout the week and even in our own homes, it's not like any other group or club in the world. We're not a group based on something we've done or some common interest that we share like singing or sports or even potlucks. We're a group based on something beyond and outside of ourselves. We're a group that's not based on us, but on God. And this church is a supernatural community. It defies the norms of our world and stands out as distinct and vastly different from every other club and group around us because God is at work amongst us. He's saved us. He's transformed us and given us new life. And he's continually working to make us all more and more like him. And that's one reason we're referred to as the body of Christ. We, the church, we're called to live, to love, and to serve like him. Therefore, we resemble Jesus to the world around us. Or at least we should. And I do believe we do, but I know we also fall short and we sin and we just look like the world at times too. But what we'll see in our passage today is that almost 2,000 years ago, supernatural community was forming because of what Jesus had accomplished on our behalf or on the behalf of sinful people back then. And this same supernatural community is alive and well today because of what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of sinners like us. We who were once lost and dead in sin but are now found and alive in Christ. So this is what we'll be looking at in Ephesians 2, the forming of this community. But before we, re we read our passage, I want to briefly catch us all up to speed on what Paul has just written in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul begins chapter 2 with a sobering, weighty, and marvelous portrayal of the gospel. In verse 1 he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Not kind of hanging in there. Not just a little off, but still okay. No. In our trespasses and sins, we were all once dead. This is the sobering, the humbling, the pride-revealing reality of the gospel. We were all dead in sin. We are all far worse and more sinful than we care to think. And this is not good news so far, but Paul isn't finished. In verses 4 and 5 he says, But God, Brandon's favorite line, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Even though we were dead, God made us alive. God, who is rich in mercy and because of his great love, took our dead selves and made us alive with Christ. And it obviously had nothing to do with ourselves or what we've accomplished or done or achieved because we were dead. It's all by grace something we never deserved. Paul continues on in verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. This is the gospel. This is the good news of, of our salvation. We have been saved by grace through faith. But Paul doesn't stop here. The gospel, this good news, does not end with our salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, contains this beautiful and literally life-changing message that we have been brought from death to life, that we have obtained the gift of salvation on the basis of God's grace by faith, but that is not the end. In being brought from death to life, we are not left alone at this point to somehow enjoy this new life in Christ by ourselves. We are now part of a new group, the family of God. A group that is not only reconciled to God, but reconciled to one another. And what we'll see in verses 11 through 22 in Ephesians 2 is how wide or inclusive this family is. The breadth of it, the expanse of it. And we'll see how tightly knit this family is, the depth of it. So join with me as I read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we see the breadth and depth of the family of God. I'll pray, and then I'll read the passage. Father, you have brought us from death to life. There's no greater news than that. There's no greater hope than and it wasn't done by anything we did. It was something that you did. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That even though we were enemies of God, you loved us. God, your grace and your mercy are astounding, miraculous. They don't make sense. But it's who you are. And it's the love that you have for us. So God, I pray this morning as we look at this passage that it's your gospel, your good news. That's the basis of all of it. That you died and brought us to life. Father, we thank you for that. Pray you just be with us, admonishing us, teaching us, leading us, convicting us. We look at your word. Pray in your name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul writes, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body 
through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. The family of God, the church, has a breadth and a depth to it that are supernatural And Paul explains how and why this is so. In our passage today, Paul is speaking to two groups. One group is made up of Gentiles, or non-Jewish people, who have come to faith in Christ. And the other group is made up of Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ. And there is a vast chasm between these two groups outside of Christ during Paul's time. A division that, at a minimum, has a distaste and, more commonly, a hatred for the other, on both sides of this chasm. These two groups, Gentiles and Jewish people, are like oil and water. They don't mix well together. They'd rather just remain separate. And Paul sheds some light on this division as he calls the Gentile believers to remember who they were before Christ, before the amazing gospel of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 transformed their lives. And Paul wasn't doing this to belittle the Gentile believers. We'll see why he brings this up later on in our passage. But Paul continues on, and he uses the common verbiage of the time to label the two groups, the uncircumcised, or the Gentiles, and the circumcised, the Jews. And Paul wasn't okay with this terminology. You can see Paul's disapproval in his description of this being done in the flesh by human hands a.k.a. not done in a way that is honoring or glorifying God. But this is how they were described during Paul's time. And this is how it had been for a long time. You can think back in the Old Testament to Jonah being called by God to go preach to the Ninevites about repenting because of God's coming judgment. What does Jonah do? Gets on a ship and goes the complete opposite direction. And when he finally does go to Nineveh after being swallowed by a fish and being vomited onto the land and finally walking there, all the people, including the king, repent. And God relents from the disaster that he was bringing. And what is Jonah's response? In Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he didn't want God to be merciful towards the Ninevites. And he was so upset that God was merciful that he would rather die than live. Talk about a total disdain for a different people group, right? 
And this is built into the traditions, commands, and regulations in Jesus' time as well, in Paul's time. In the book of Acts, after Jesus had died and resurrected, and the apostles were spreading the gospel, we read in chapter 10, or chapters 9 and 10, that Peter had a vision about clean and unclean animals. And in this vision, God told Peter, what God has made clean, do not call impure. And the vision ended, and Peter wasn't totally sure what to take away from it. This blanket kind of descended down, and there was all these weird animals on it. And so Peter's like, I I don't get it, okay? They're not unclean or impure anymore. And then, you know, God's at work. Some men show up at Peter's house calling out to him, and they want to bring Peter to a man named Cornelius, who was a centurion, a.k.a. not a Jew by any means, but a Gentile. And on top of that, a Roman military commander. Not someone a common Jewish person would want to go and have a chat with. And Peter, being led by the Spirit, goes to Cornelius' house with these men. And notice what Peter says when he first comes into Cornelius' house. In Acts 10, verse 28, it says this. Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. Forbidden. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. The vision connects for Peter now, right? Back then, it was forbidden for any Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. And Gentiles also had similar divisive views towards Jewish people. It wasn't just like a one-sided thing. So whether it was a natural hatred or national hatred, like what Jonah had, or simply the regulations at the time, like what Peter was referring to, there was a great divide between these two groups, Jews and the Gentiles. But what's amazing to see is that God was already at work in the book of Acts, beginning to form this supernatural community in the midst of division and hostility. And jumping back to Ephesians 2, Paul describes this rift between the two groups in his own way. And he does it by focusing on the Gentile believers and how far away they were from God. Looking at Ephesians 2, verse 12, they're far away from God because they were without Christ. Meaning, they were without a Messiah. Gentiles had no hope of a future coming king one day. They were far away from God because they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. They were not a part of God's nation, family, people, right? The Gentiles, they were foreigners to the covenants of promise. They couldn't claim those covenants as their own. Those were for God's people. They were far away from God. They were without hope. And ultimately, they were without God in the world. Verse 12 shows the bleak reality of life apart from God. But we can't forget what Paul just spoke of in verses 1 through 10. Because he states in verse 13 that although they were far away, really, really far away, they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in being brought near, in being brought from death to life because of their faith in Jesus, this ongoing division between Gentiles and Jews is coming to a clash in this supernatural community. And it clashes in such a way as to reveal the breadth of this community. And so Paul makes it interesting 
in verse 14. Instead of continuing his focus on the Gentile believers, he opens it back up to what he introduced earlier. These two groups, circumcised, uncircumcised, right? Gentile, Jew. And he says in verse 14, for he, Christ, he is our peace. He's not your peace, or their peace, or my peace. He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. But how in the world did Jesus do that? I mean, these people do not like each other. They even have regulations in place to help keep them separate. Verse 15 explains how. Jesus wiped out any law, any regulation, any command that was used and could be used to create division so that Jesus could bring the two groups that were separate as oil and water together. The chasm that separated Jews from Gentiles has been eliminated in Christ. And going on in verse 15, this was to, cre to create in himself one, one new man from the two, resulting in peace. This is where we see the breadth of the supernatural community. It goes as far and as wide as polar opposites, as enemies on opposing sides being brought together in Christ. The breadth of this community is broad enough and inclusive enough to include both Jews and Gentiles. So how could Jesus possibly bring together polar opposites and expect peace? Paul says in verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. This is a supernatural community where hostility and division are eradicated and unity and peace are created all because of Jesus. And reconciling us to God, he has also reconciled anything between any of us because he put that hostility to death on the cross. So Paul therefore says in verse 17, Jesus came and proclaimed this good news of peace to those who were far away and to those who were near. The breadth of this group, of this family of God, is for all. For those who are far away and have never heard of God, and for those who are near and have known of God all their lives. It's not limited to certain people groups, but it's expansive enough to include every kind of people. That's why Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations. That's why in Acts 1 verse 8 it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and then it gets tricky, and Samaria. Jews did not like Samaria. And then, just to rub salt in the wound, to the ends of the earth, a.k.a. the rest of the Gentiles. It's why Revelation says every tribe, nation, and tongue will be represented in eternity with God. Because the good news of peace in Christ that he brings us from death to life is for everyone to hear. The ones who are farthest from God all the way to those who are nearest to him. 
And this brings all who have faith in Christ into one supernatural community. As Paul says in verse 18, we have access in one spirit to the Father. In bringing down the dividing wall of hostility, we are all one family in him. There is no division. We are all one in Christ. Notice how many times Paul says one, peace, unity in this passage over and over again. So what does it mean for you and me? It first of all means that we are not alone. We were never meant to come to saving faith in Jesus and to then be left alone to ourselves for the rest of our lives. Now, in Christ, we are united to every other believer, everyone who believes in Christ in this room, because we who are far away have been brought near. And we get to function as a tightly knit family of God, and we'll see more on that in just a minute. It also means that we are a community of peace. If God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles and brought unity and peace to two polar opposites, then we know by the power of the Spirit that we can be a community of peace. And it doesn't mean it will be easy, but it's already been established. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility for he is our peace. We get to live out one of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus has done the work and set the example for us, and in bringing us from death to life, in reconciling us to God and to each other, we have a built-in unity and peace in which we love others within the breadth of this community as he first loved us. So, we need to check our hearts. And we need to ask ourselves the tough question. In what ways am I being divisive? In what ways am I not being a peacemaker? Within the breadth of this church family here, look around at one another. Have I caused hostility or division that has not been reconciled? It may even be within your own family, your own small group, your own ministry team that you serve in. We need to examine ourselves. We need to care about the peace and the unity in this church family because otherwise, the supernatural breadth of it just fall away. Be like any other clever group in the world. Because Christ will no longer be our peace. Instead, we'll let Sin, selfishness, pride, or whatever it may be, raise up the dividing walls of hostility again, and we're failing to be the true family of God. And Jesus knows this will be a struggle. That's why he prays for us in his high priestly prayer. John 17, 21, he says, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. You want to talk about the unity that we're called to have? We're called to have the same unity that Christ has with the Father. That's how united we are. So, let's be peacemakers within the family of God and outside the family of God, inviting others into the family of God, right? May we not let our sin 
and selfishness harm this community, the supernatural unity and peace that we share as one body? Rather, let's love one another. God first loved us. And within the unity that's found in the breadth of this community, this family of God that we have here and beyond these walls, there is a depth to it that is unmatched. Paul has already spoken to this depth, that in Christ, we are one new man, one new humanity resulting from the two. Meaning, we are a new humanity distinct from the rest of the world. Our identity is no longer tied to our race, to our gender, to our age, to our career. Our identity in this new humanity is solely found in Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul adds on to this, though, and in verse 19, he says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Here we see Paul circling back to what he originally said about Gentile believers before they came to faith. They were strangers and foreigners. But now, fellow citizens are part of the family. The Gentiles back then and us today, who were once very far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So near that we relate to everyone else as a part of our family. And here we see the supernatural depth of the family of God. The Gentile and Jewish believers were not merely called to just tolerate each other in this unity that they have in Christ. Neither are we. Rather, we are so deeply united that Paul calls us one new humanity in verse 15 and then adds on in verse 19, we are fellow citizens and members of God's household. And we see this familial language throughout the New Testament in John 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, to all who did have faith in Christ, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. And in 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are? We are all united as children of God in this one big family. And that means all of us here who have faith in Christ, children of God. Yet, I think, and I know, we struggle to live in this way. We have a hard time relating to and treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I do at times, right? And I'm the one up here preaching right now. But this is the reality. And I think we're missing out on the blessing of the family of God if we're not willing to embrace what God has established for his church, that we are truly a family. Paul instructs Timothy regarding this in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. He tells Timothy, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. 
and the younger women as sisters with all purity. We are all to relate to one another as a close-knit family. And so we need to be reminded of this again and again and again. That's why we're doing this series, right? Because it doesn't come naturally to us. But it comes supernaturally because Jesus has united and reconciled us through his death on the cross. And I know some, if not many, if not all of us, have difficult relationships within our own biological family. So it can be hard to imagine this idea of the family of God being a blessing at times. But in Christ, it truly is. It's the way God chose to design his church to be. It's the way he's chosen to describe what it is. Not only are we fellow citizens, but we are members of God's household. We are the family of God. And here's the awesome and beautiful thing about the family of God, about the people that Jesus has brought from death to life and reconciled to himself and one another. This family of God is built on the foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. Paul finishes this section by painting a picture in our minds as to what this unity and peace we share as the family of God looks like, what it accomplishes. Verses 19 through 22 says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. We are being put together and built up into a figurative holy temple of the Lord, a temple with Jesus as the cornerstone, meaning everything is set in its place according to him. There is not one piece that is not dependent upon him. And with Jesus as the cornerstone, this building will not fall because he has reconciled everyone and he is our peace. And the family of God, us, we are a figurative temple being built up for God's spirit to dwell. We are the dwelling place of God. How astounding is that? Yet this is what God designed and this is what Christ has accomplished. He is building all of us up together as the family of God to be the dwelling place of the Spirit. And people will be able to tell this is where God's Spirit dwells because of the unity, peace, and love we have for one another. That's why Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 to 35, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are not just another group or club. We are a supernatural community with a breadth and a depth that can only be explained by the grace of God and the reconciliation found in Jesus Christ. May we go from here 
pondering what it means to be the family of God. Repenting of anything that we have done to hinder the unity and peace found in the family of God. Maybe it's even within your own family. And loving one another as God first loved us. Because he brought us from death to life. Let's stand together and pray. God, while we were while we were dead in our sins, you brought us to life. In your great mercy and love, Christ died for us. You washed us white as snow. God, you were using us to build a temple for your dwelling place of your spirit. God, your means of salvation and what you accomplished doesn't look like or make sense as to what the world would say. But through you, there's a peace. There's a unity. There's reconciliation that nothing in this world can reflect or resemble. God, you've formed a supernatural community. You've brought Jews and Gentiles together. Brought those who are far away and those who are near to be one new humanity. God, we no longer identify ourselves with our accomplishments or who we are, what we think of ourselves, or what the world even says. Our identity is found in you alone. We are members of your household. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, to one another, we are dads, sons, moms, daughters, grandmas, grandpas, great-grandmas, great-grandpas. God, coming to faith in you, we are not alone. We are a part of this family. And I thank you for that. Father, I pray that you can help us here, this gathering this morning, live that out. That we can be the family of God. That we can be united because of what you have done. You've torn down the dividing wall of hostility. You've given us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, I pray that we can be a testimony to the world around us of the supernatural breadth and the supernatural depth of this community here. That they can see you and your spirit are at work. There's something miraculous here. Father, I pray that you can help us love each other. I pray that you can help us forgive each other, that we can reconcile in all things so that your glory may be spread. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you first loved us. Pray in your name.